Good morning. Gong Hei Fat Choi. Happy New Year. I don't know what year it is in China, but it's the new year. And uh, the rat, the year of the rat. Um, I don't know how many thousands of years in. I, that's what, anyone know? No. Okay. Ignorance is exposed here. Okay. Uh, well, good, good morning to you all. It's so good to be together. I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in Mark 9 and verse uh, 14. Uh, it's page 844 in the church Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible in front of you, feel free to go grab one at the back there. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that and take it home and make it your own and make good use of it. It's our gift to you. We are a little over halfway through um, a kind of walk through this extraordinary document, which is the Gospel of Mark, the eyewitness account of this man who, um, who recorded what is understood to be the Apostle Peter's eyewitness testimony in this amazing first-hand account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, our, our hope as we wander through, kind of just slowly walk through passages and scriptures and books of the Bible in this way is that we want to. We don't want it to be like a buffet where you walk up to a big spread and just pick and choose the bits that you're interested in, but rather that we're, it's more like marinating. We're sitting in the story of Jesus, and we've been doing so for a while. And uh, it's gratifying to know that that means it takes some of the, the power and the control away from the preacher in terms of the agenda of what is thought about and talked about and allows God to speak to us in a way that lets him set the agenda, lets him set the subject in a sense as we are confronted with um, truths and ideas and stories that we might not otherwise grapple with. And I just say that as a word of explanation. I know not all of you were here when we began this lengthy journey through Mark's gospel. Um, and so I want you to understand why we're doing this and where we're up to. And in many ways, it's not so much a concern of mine whether you've heard what preceded today. It's just a concern that we, we allow God's word to speak to us as we open it again afresh this morning. So I want to read to you a story of what happened um, almost immediately after Jesus had come down from the mountain. He'd been, in many ways, the pinnacle uh, moment, a kind of threshold moment in Mark's gospel is when Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and there is this exceptional um, experience of his transfiguration as, the, as his face shines and his clothes are bright and the Father's voice speaks. And everything has been leading up to this moment. All these miracles that Jesus has been doing, all his preaching, all of it has been leading to this moment when there would be a sense of his unveiling before these men and the full sort of disclosure of who he is. And then he comes down from the mountain and this is the situation that he meets with. It says in verse 14 that when they came to the disciples, which I take to mean the rest of the disciples who didn't have the privilege of being with him on the mountain, it says they saw a great crowd around them and, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now, obviously, we would recognize a condition like this and probably understand it to be a form of epilepsy. One of the reasons why we are confident when we read a passage like this that this is indeed the work of an evil spirit and not merely an organic thing, a physical thing. A couple of the evidence of that are, firstly, that the child... Uh, that the, there's a sense in which the child's self-destructive tendencies, um, that the boy had been thrown into the fire or almost drowned on multiple occasions, shows you that there's a malevolent force at work underneath his condition. And also the fact that Jesus' presence 
evokes uh, an example of this kind of fit that he has. tells us that the presence of Christ and his holy power and his purity causes the demons to, to feel afraid. And so it says, verse 21, And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I think that this story is a little unique in the accounts of the various miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And I tell you why. It's because there is a sense of a shift of focus, that the lens, the focal point of the lens has moved in this account. It's not so much that this story is about Jesus, for one thing. Of course it is. In the, in, in the deepest sense, but it's not so much that the focus is Christ. Up to now, the various miracles that had taken place had been shown to us or told to us for the purpose of unveiling aspects of who Jesus is, his power, his authority. But having just read about him being transfigured on the mountaintop, we as the readers are left in no doubt. There's no longer a question about who he is or his identity. And that's not really the point of Mark writing down this miracle. It's not so much about Jesus in that sense, nor is it so much about the condition, about the person being healed. When you're reading these successive miracles, very often the condition kind of um, encapsulates spiritual truth and reality. Uh, So when Jesus heals a blind man, there's a sense in which the deeper meaning in the story is to teach us about spiritual blindness and how we all need the healing. When Jesus stills a storm, it teaches us about Christ's power over and lordship over the circumstances of our lives. And this is true for many of the miracles, and so we're interested in the condition of what Christ is doing through it. And I say that's actually less the focus in this miracle. So if it's not about Jesus, it's not so much about the condition and what Christ is doing there and then. What is it about? And I think the answer, and this is why I'm saying it's a significant miracle, is that the shift in focus is now placed upon the disciples and, by extension, upon you if you are a follower of Jesus. That there's a sense in which it asks important questions of us. And I'll show you why that's the case. When the chapter opened, the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus says, I, Truly, truly, I say to you, there, will, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so he sets the note for the nature of his kingdom, that his kingdom will be characterized by power and that that power will be felt and experienced by his followers, by the men who he was training up and by successive generations of Christians. That was the expectation of Christ. But not long after that, after that promise, he arrives at this scene And there is a kind of disagreement taking place. There's an argument happening. And what's the argument happening? Jesus inquires, what's going on here? And they explain to him the circumstances in which this boy has been brought for healing and Christ's own disciples are unable to help him. It says that in verse 18. I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able Now, given that Jesus has just said, listen, you are going to know something of the power of the kingdom. Our expectation should be that as Christ's disciples, we walk in that. And yet what happens when Jesus arrives is that we see this deficiency. We see this impotence, this powerlessness among Christ's own disciples. And Jesus expresses something of disappointment. He says, O faithless generation, how long am I to to, to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. There's a sense of a groan in his spirit. 
Because the men who he's training for ministry, those who should be clothed with power, and listen, by extension, I'm saying this is true also of us, that instead what happens is that they're exposed for not having the power they ought to have, the faith and the spiritual authority that they ought to have. And the question that kind of presses upon us then is, how can Christ's disciples grow in spiritual power in the way that Christ promised they would? How can you know an increasing measure of the power of the Spirit in your life? And why is that an important question? And I'll tell you why. It's because the Christian life is not just a matter of right belief. I'd be the first to say that a true and right understanding of the gospel is absolutely central to the Christian faith. Nothing has done more damage to the church and to Christians than a distortion of truth. But I would also say that knowing the right things is not the sum total of the Christian life. That part of the gospel message is the experience of the power of God in your life. And that to be a Christian who merely knows about Christ and knows about the things of God, but not to have felt and experienced and indeed to walk in his power is a deficiency in your life that ought not to be true of you. Part of the reason I say this is because, as Paul told us in the end of Ephesians 6, he said to the believers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In other words, you need power. Because he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, for God to send you into the Christian life only armed with a right knowledge of the gospel would leave you, in a sense, inadequately prepared for all that you face in the Christian life. And what is also true and what's shown to us is that the Christian is not somebody who merely knows the gospel and receives it, as important and vital as that is, but somebody who also walks in the power that God provides so as to live a Christian life that's fully pleasing to him. And this is all the way through the pages of the New Testament. I could show you many, many passages which kind of elucidate and show to us the necessary, vital importance of having power in your life if you were to live the Christian life. But let me just give you a few examples of the kinds of things that I'm thinking about. One example is, of course, that the, uh, the first disciples, when they were commissioned with the mission that Christ gave them, Christ told them that they must have power in order to simply bear witness to him. He says, you will, in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In other words, the early, even the, the apostles, eyewitnesses of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, even they would have been ineffective in their ability to communicate the truth of what they believed if they merely relied upon themselves or upon their ability to explain and to articulate that truth. It required more than the mere grasp, the intellectual grasp of the gospel. It also required that they be baptized with the Spirit and with power just for the purpose of communicating this gospel to others. That ought to immediately make us sit up and be alert because we think about how ineffectual we, we feel in our, in our ability to share the truth of what we know about Christ. What is it that we need? Jesus made it clear, you need power. You also need power simply to believe and to keep on believing this gospel that we, we love. In Romans 15, Paul says, he blesses the Roman Christians in this way. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in, in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In order to be a hope-filled Christian, full of confidence, full of certainty about the things that you believe, you need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, because this is a supernatural capacity, not merely a natural one, and not merely an intellectual one. Another example of this is for the sake of being able to persevere in the faith. In Colossians 1, when Paul describes, when he's talking about his prayers for the Colossian Christians, he says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For what? You think for miracles, for 
um, exceptional displays of, of, uh, of, of power? No, he says, for all endurance and patience with joy. The Christian life cannot be sustained, in other words, in the very basic sense of just walking with God patiently, with perseverance, happily. That reality of the Christian life cannot be sustained unless God give you his power to strengthen you. So what I'm hoping you can see at this point is that when Christ said to his disciples that you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power, he was saying that there are these dual elements. Christ has been teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. There's more that they'll learn about the gospel. But along with that is the experience of and the reality of the power of God, his supernatural aid and sufficiency in order to lead the Christian life well. And those things are inseparable. So, when we look at this story, on the back of that promise of Christ giving them the kingdom and the power, and we discover these disciples in a little bit of a puzzled state. They ask Jesus at the end of the story, why could we not cast it out? Really, it it puts the lens back upon us. And we think not just about situations like this one, which are rare, but also about the ordinary day-to-day experiences of the Christian life. And we ought to be asking ourselves this question. Would we be any different from then? Would we know anything more of the experience of the power of God in our lives? Would we be confident that we're walking in that power which Christ provides for us? And how do we grow in it? How do you as a Christian? This may be the very thing which is most lacking in your Christian life. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home from a young age. You know it all. There's no, there's no uh, surprises in terms of the, the doctrine and the content of the gospel. And yet you feel there's something lacking. And the answer that Christ gives his disciples is where I want us to dwell. He said to them in answer, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, he makes a connection. I think this is the entire point of this story. He makes a connection between the kind of spiritual authority and power which he had and which he demonstrates in that moment and the Christian who is a person of prayer. Now, I want to clarify just at the outset what he means when he says this kind cannot be driven out by prayer. I do not think that what he's saying is that what was required at that moment was a prayer meeting. I don't think he was saying that, you know, if they walked up to the situation, discovered that this boy was suffering as he was, that they should have all got down on their knees and had a kind of um, a prayer meeting for his sake in the hope that something would have just happened sovereignly, that God would have just moved. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think rather what Jesus is saying is that he's describing a situation in which what they were encountering here was a more extreme form of, of dark spiritual power than they'd encountered before. These, these apostles had already done this, these kinds of things, but they met with failure here. And he's saying, in other words, that this kind of evil spiritual power requires a corresponding holy power in the life of the Christian. There's an amazing story in the book of Acts which kind of shows us... Uh, an example of this kind of thing that I'm describing here, where it says of Paul that he was going about doing extraordinary things and miracles by, uh, in, in amazing ways. And then he, Luke takes us to a little aside and tells us what, something else that had happened. He said some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists had undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And so they were going around saying, in the name of Jesus, come out of this man you know, and exorcising people who were suffering the oppression of demons. And these seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva encounter this this person who is possessed by this evil spirit, and the spirit answers them in this way. It says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then proceeds to beat the men, stripping them, so that they flee naked and humiliated and utterly destroyed by the experience. And what you're, you're discovering there is, of course, an example of the very thing that Jesus is describing here in, Mark's, in Mark 9. That there are believers 
who possess increasing measure of spiritual power because of the reality of their prayer life. I think that's a better way of summing up what I'm trying to say. And I want us to ask the question then, why is prayer so essential to a life of spiritual power? Let me begin by answering it in this way. And this may sound simplistic to you, but I think it's crucial as the first place to start. That those who pray are simply those who ask. Now, what is prayer at its most basic? Prayer at its most essential and most basic is not the reciting of words that you learned in assembly and that trip off the tongue. You often see it with sports teams, don't you, where they take a knee and everyone says the Lord's Prayer regardless of whether they believe it or not. It may or may not be prayer that's taking place in that moment, but the mere action of it doesn't make it prayer. Prayer is not going into a dusty old cathedral and lighting a candle. That's not prayer. There's no example in the Bible of someone doing that as a way of offering prayer to God. Prayer is not the adoption of a posture. It's not that the fact that you get on your knees that makes prayer prayer. And certainly, you know, there are those who advocate a kind of what they call silent or contemplative prayer. In other words, the idea that you're meditating on truth, that's not prayer in the Bible. That's something else. That's meditation. That's very important. But it's not prayer. When you ask, what does the Bible tell us that prayer is? That it's most essential, it's most basic. I think the Bible shows us that prayer is asking. There are more dimensions to it than that. But I think fundamentally, asking is at the heart of prayer. Now, immediately, some of you might recoil at that idea. And partly because, well, for different reasons. It seems unspiritual, doesn't it, for one thing? It seems selfish to be the kind of person who goes into the presence of God in order simply to ask. And, you know, the way it's, it's sort of been said to me in the past is, you know, prayer should not just be a shopping list. We don't go to God with our list of things that we want him to address. Or people sort of complain and say, no, this is it's somehow a very, a very base level of prayer. And really what you want in the Christian life is to move beyond asking in that way to more higher levels of prayer, like I was describing, that kind of contemplative prayer or whatever, wordless prayer. Or some people think, no, this is just a childish approach to prayer. The really maturity in the Christian life moves beyond this basic way of simply going to God and asking. And I think, in a way, it offends our pride to think about prayer in this very fundamental way. What should I answer? When Jesus taught about prayer... He taught his disciples to ask. He said in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he kind of unfolds this a little bit more with the use of an illustration. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It amazes me how quickly we forget this fundamental aspect of what prayer is. How often you can walk into a church where you're led in a corporate prayer where there is no asking taking place. We pray for those who suffer around the world, and we pray for this, but there's no prayer, there's no request, there's no asking. It's a mere statement of situations. And Jesus says, no, fundamentally, when you come to God in prayer, you come to ask. And the question you ought to be thinking is why? Why is that such a fundamental aspect of what prayer, aspect of what prayer is? And I think the answer is because it puts us in the position of absolute dependence. And dependence gives glory to a Father who is all-sufficient to meet our every need. The Christian who's moved beyond asking, in other words, is a Christian who's elevated above their station. They think they can get by without God's help. It seems to me that when you see the biblical examples of what real prayer is, it is desperation. It is asking. It's that acknowledgement that we are powerless without him. That we have nothing without his help. 
that we come to him. And I think that this is why Jesus advocated this as central to prayer. Some of you say, well, I do ask. I also would add, though, that Jesus didn't merely tell us to ask. He also taught the necessity of perseverance in prayer, which also is a very childlike quality. Whenever we go on a journey with our children, if you go on a journey with an adult, they ask you, how long do you think this will take us to get there? Great. Logged. The question doesn't come up again. Whenever we go with our children, it's become part of the routine that every 10 minutes of the three hours or the four hours, the children ask the question again. How long? How long? It helps with the sat-nav because Seth can read the actual time and count down. (laughs) But there's still that persistence. You know, yesterday we celebrated Chinese New Year with my um, in-laws and my oldest, he's six, he knows that at a certain point in the day there's going to be a tea ceremony and he's going to be given red envelopes that contain money. And he's been anticipating this for more than six months. (laughs) Already spent the money in his mind many times over. And, uh, you know, you can't blame him. He's only six, but it's also rude, right? And so multiple times in the day yesterday, because they delayed it right until the evening when my sister-in-law arrived, right multiple times in the day, the boy was patiently playing, but then not so patient, persevering and asking the question, when do we do the tea ceremony? When is it happening? <laughs> Mommy, Daddy. He's like, tea ceremony, red packets. Where are the red packets? And we had to tell him, shush, Dad. that's rude. Be quiet. But that's childlike, isn't it? It's not merely asking, but it's asking repeatedly with determination, with perseverance. So when Jesus says to his disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, he's saying at the most basic level in the Christian life, Attaining something of spiritual authority and power in your life cannot be grasped without this element of merely asking God and doing so with perseverance and determination. It's amazing how basic that is and yet how quickly Christians forget this. How perfunctory our prayer life might be. How absent it might be that we've forgotten to ask In the book of James, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Let me move on to a second aspect of this then. I would also add that not only is prayer connected with spiritual power because of the act of asking, it's also because of the receiving of the Holy Spirit that comes through the request, that comes through asking. That the giving of the Holy Spirit to the believer is part of God's answer to us in prayer. And I want us to just think about this for a moment. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in empowering the life of the Christian? Some of you may have thought that the Christian life was more a matter of routine or of knowledge. And what I hope you understand from looking at this subject today is, of course, this reality that the Christian life in its most authentic state is a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, where you experience His grace, you experience His dynamic effect and work in your life on a day-to-day basis. Now we see this, one of the most beautiful proofs of this is in the life of Jesus Himself. When we look at the early accounts of what began at the start of His ministry in Luke's Gospel, we're told a number of things about Him, how He was baptized um, in the River Jordan by his cousin John, it says when, when he'd been baptized and was praying, the, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Now you have to log that because of what happens next. It then tells us in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So the first test of the spiritual power which Jesus has received is his exposure to temptation. A rerun, really, of the Garden of Eden in which Adam failed, but Christ will succeed. But how will he do it? He'll do it by the power of the Holy Spirit being gifted to him. Then you see later in Luke 4, that it says Jesus returned after his time of temptation, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So suddenly the beginning of his ministry takes place because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through him. And it tells us in, the, in Luke 4 how he stood up in the synagogue in his hometown and he read from the place 
In the book of Isaiah, he opened the scroll of Isaiah, and he opened it to this particular section where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus is explaining what has just happened. He's been filled with spiritual power by the Holy Spirit, and he has begun to preach the good news and do other things in the power of that Spirit. Now, this ought to strike you as amazingly strange because Jesus is the Son of God. If there was anyone who ever lived who ought to have been self-sufficient without the gift of the Holy Spirit upon him, it would have been Jesus. And yet Christ himself, in living a fully human life, in living the life which he taught us to live, did it by the operation of the Holy Spirit at work in and through him. In other words, it seems he didn't draw upon the power of his sonship. In the book of Philippians, it tells us that he emptied himself. There's a sense in which he voluntarily discarded the power of his sonship and instead he moved and lived and worked by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to demonstrate what? In order to demonstrate that you and I can live and move and live the Christian life by the power of that same Spirit who's gifted to us. You are not the Son of God, but you have the same Holy Spirit at work in you. This is why, as I read to you in Acts 1.8, he said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. Now, the Bible also shows us that that is a mark of being a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit at work in you, you are not a Christian. It says in Romans 8, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So a very basic aspect of what it means to have become to believe in Jesus is that the Holy Spirit has been at work in your heart, regenerating you, bringing you to life, opening your eyes. So if you've been in church for any amount of time but have sensed that you still do not believe, the answer is there. The Holy Spirit hasn't brought you to life in that sense. But if you do believe, then you have the Spirit of God. Be encouraged. So then your question is, well, if I have the Spirit of God, what is this need for continued prayer? And why is it that I sense the powerlessness in my day-to-day Christian life, such that I am afflicted with doubt, such that I am uh, struggling to, to persevere, such that I don't demonstrate this kind of spiritual authority which Jesus wanted in his disciples. What's going on? And I think the answer that the New Testament tells us is that it's clear that, to me that the measure of the Spirit's power in the, in the life of the Christian can indeed increase and grow. And I tell you this, there are many places we could go to demonstrate that, but a couple of the, the striking ones are there in Paul's letter to his disciple Timothy, his, uh, his kind of uh, protege, I suppose. And he says to him in the second letter to Timothy in the first chapter in the sixth verse, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So it seems what Paul is saying to him, at some point I prayed for you, I laid my hands on you. And what happened when Paul laid his hands on people to pray for them? The Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And then he says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now what strikes me as interesting about that is that Timothy clearly has received the gift of this spirit at work in him through the laying on of Paul's hands. But Paul says to him what? He says, fan into flame the gift of God. That it's possible to live the Christian life negligent of the grace of God given to you by the gift of the Spirit. And when Paul says to him, fan into flame the gift of God, he's saying, Christian, you, he's talking to a pastor here, you must stoke up this fire. You must exercise faith to, and prayer and seek God that the gift of the power of the Spirit upon you would, not, would increase and grow for a greater measure of power in your life. Another example of this 
and in a way just demonstrating how, how mundane this could be on the surface and yet how absolutely vital it is in reality. When, when Paul prayed to, for the Ephesians, he said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. We're very interested in why Paul bows his knees before the Father. What is it he prayed for? What was it that he desperately wanted for the Christians? What would he be praying for for you if you were here with us today? The answer is that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And again, not so that they could move necessarily in miraculous powers. That may well be part of it, but that's not his focal his, his, the thing that he's interested in here, he says rather so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what it's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ and so on. In other words, the Christian must have the power of the Spirit simply to grasp the depth of Christ's love for you and that in grasping it, your life will be absolutely transformed. But it's a supernatural activity of God. That's what strikes me as interesting. And that it's something that must increase and must grow. That even if you became a Christian because the Holy Spirit was at work in you, that's not everything. There is more. Won't you bow your knee as Paul does and cry out that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you in this way with all his might to give you greater spiritual authority and power? I think that's interesting. I think it's striking. I think it's provocative. Another one of the proofs of this is how in, in Acts chapter 4, just two chapters earlier, the Holy Spirit has been given to the new believers in the gift that came on the day of Pentecost. They've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. But not long afterwards, we find them in another prayer meeting calling out to God for more of His Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time thing is what I'm trying to say to you. It's an increasing thing. It's something that we go back to for God. We go to him and say, God, give me a greater measure of your spirit so that I can live this Christian life. And without it, you'll be dry. You'll be cracked and broken and disillusioned and weak and subject to temptations that gain a power over you. Feeling that God is distant, not knowing his love in your life, and not having spiritual authority and power. So where we got to is this conclusion, I think, that there are basically two kinds of Christians. That on the one hand, there are those Christians who are saved, but just barely. And who in their Christian life remain weak. They have no appetite, no desire no desperation, no urgency that God would be with them today. They had an experience once upon a time. You remember when you were saved. You remember when God opened your eyes. You remember when your heart was energized. You remember what it felt to love Christ for the first time. But it is just a memory, perhaps. And you're living on yesterday's experiences. And then there's this other kind of Christian who seeks God for more. There is this holy discontent in your spirit, in your gut. It says, God, I must come to you and ask again. And what you need is power, not yesterday's power, but today's grace. I think one of the things that's most clear to me in the New Testament about what it means to be a disciple of Christ is that it is a vital, present relationship with him in which you need and know his intimacy with you today, not just yesterday, but today. And his power comes to you afresh today. That you need manna today. And that kind of Christian is someone who you'll find on their knees before God. This kind, Jesus says, does not come out by anything but prayer. And I think what he's describing is the person who knows an increasing measure of spiritual authority and power as the Holy Spirit comes to you. 
I want to add a last point before I close. It's not just those who ask and those who receive something of the Spirit. There's another dimension to this that's related to prayer. And it's that those who pray are those who hear from God. The reason why I stress this is because obviously Jesus, in teaching the disciples, he explicitly describes the necessity of faith. He says, oh, faithless generation. Then a little bit further on, he says, if, he says, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, what I want you to understand then is the connection between what he says about the necessity of faith and, and the necessity of prayer, and in fact that those two things are bound together. And I think it works like this. Just understand with me that verse. When he answers the father, the dad of the boy who's unwell, and uh, he said to Jesus, if you, can, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And what is he saying? What is he offering that man? What is he offering you? And the answer, I think, first we've got to begin with the negative. He is not describing here a kind of blank check. Now, some of you are too young to know what a check is. <laughs> a check is a piece of paper that your bank account gives you with, and what you do, I know this sounds stupid, but I genuinely think some of you have never seen one, so I'm just going to explain the analogy. <laughs> you write the amount of money in words, you write it in digits, and then you sign it, having addressed it to a person, and that amount will magically transfer from your account to theirs when they cash the check. A blank check is a check which is signed and addressed to the right person, but has no amount. So it's up to you to fill in how much money they're going to give you. And some people take promises like this about, that Christ offered in, in describing prayer and how he said, just as he says here, that all things are possible for one who believes. They take it as a blank check promise. They say, if I believe hard enough, anything I ask for is mine. And I think that's a, a very bad misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. For one reason, it leads to the kind of excesses that have come through what we describe as the prosperity gospel. Now, I'd be surprised if you have not encountered this at some point if only through television channels with perfectly quaffed preachers preaching to the camera saying to people, if you can ask God for whatever you want, he's going to give it to you. Just, just imagine that Lamborghini. Just imagine that private jet. And, you know, these guys are living the dream themselves because they're basically, you know, basically committing a kind of fraud, I suppose. Or they're, they're, it, it's very bad. Um, <laughs> and it's wrong. And it's just incorrect. And what they're offering is not right. And what it tends to lead to is deep disillusionment. I knew a family from our hometown who had experienced a great tragedy in the father uh, having cancer. And they were godly people, and they trusted in God for healing. And it, they felt that if they believed hard enough, he'd be healed. And of course, what eventually happened when, and I, I've known of people who have been healed, I want to say that, but I also know that's not always the case. And what eventually happened when this man passed away was that the family were crushed, absolutely crushed. And I think it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that for some of them there would have been a, a crisis of faith on the back of that experience. You say, well, what's going on here? Didn't Jesus just say, you can have anything if you believe hard enough? Isn't that what he said? And I said, what I'm trying to say to you is, no, I don't think that's it at all. And the reason is this, that Faith in the Bible is not merely a feeling. It's a gift from God. It's not merely a case of, of, of summoning up energy to say, I believe. You know, clenching your, your butt cheeks hard enough until you really sense that you really believe as you go to God in prayer. Sorry for being crude, but you know what I mean. That sense of really pushing out some faith, right? <laughs> Sorry. So... That just got worse. It went from bad to worse, didn't it? We'll scrub that on the recording. So that's not what faith is in the Bible. Faith in the Scriptures is the gift of God that comes in response to hearing. 
that you hear and you accept what God's saying. That's faith, essentially. Which is why when the Father says to Jesus, if you can, and Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes, how does a dad respond? I think it's the most identifiable scripture. You get immediately what he's saying when he says this. I believe, help my unbelief. I do when I don't believe you at the same time. I do believe, but I'm also struggling. My faith is weak. But what you're also seeing is that his faith is rising in response to the word that Christ has just spoken. This is the crucial thing you must understand. In the Bible, what we see is that faith is a response to God's voice. We see this even in the life of Jesus himself, by the way. You know how Jesus said this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, when Christ walked around doing extraordinary things, healing the sick, even raising the dead, he didn't do a single thing without knowing in that moment that this was God's will. He was in step with the Holy Spirit. You also see this in the life of Paul. The whole of his life is lived, it seems, by faith. All this energy and ministry and the miracles that he saw and traveling from place to place. We get a little glimpse of that in the end of the book of Acts where he's caught, he's, in, he's, he's under arrest and he's being transported back to Rome on a ship and they meet a storm and God had told him that the storm would happen. And because he has that a sense of the God having spoken to him, when he speaks to the crew on the ship, he says, take heart, men, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So the faith that Paul is aware of in his heart is a response to having heard the Spirit speak to him. And I think that's the crucial thing that you have to grasp when we're looking at this story of the healing of this boy. Faith is not something you conjure up by a great effort of the will. Faith is something that is gifted to us in response to the voice of the Lord. And this brings us back to prayer. When Jesus then said at the end of this story, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I think that what he's describing is the person who so walks with God in step with the Holy Spirit gifted to them that they hear him and their heart response is one of faith. Moment by moment faith. I want to just put this all together for us. Jesus is disappointed when he arrives on this scene. And I have no doubt that he would be disappointed with my level of faith. And you can answer that for yourself about you. What is it that Christ wants? What is it that he calls us to? And the answer is he calls us to be people who know an increasing measure of the power of God in our lives attained through a deeper walk with him in prayer. I think that's where Christ leads us to. That we ask, that in asking we receive more of the gift of the Holy Spirit day to day. We drink him deeply. Do not be drunk with wine, Paul tells us, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing reality in the life of the Christian. When you're on your knees in desperation, God comes to you with more grace, more of his Spirit. And in having the Spirit, you know the intimacy with God by which you experience the gift of faith. Today has mainly been about then stirring up that appetite in you. Some of you are not Christian. And I hope that what you've grasped through the things I'm saying is that the Christian life is multifaceted. That on the one hand, Christ invites you into his kingdom to experience forgiveness. That is the fundamental, most urgent thing in your life. To know that you're forgiven through the blood of Christ. Without that repentance and confession and saying, Lord, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Friend, you are lost. But one of the things that you might be most afraid of is that you think, oh, I can't do it. I can't live the Christian life. Even if I want to be forgiven, I don't know how to turn away from the things I have been doing and how to turn towards God fully. And the answer is that Christ didn't only offer us a message, but he also promised us the gift of his Holy Spirit. 
And I want to say to you today, if it's your desire to become a Christian, God will not withhold his spirit from you. But I also want to say to those of you who are Christian, some of you have been limping. Some of you are bleeding out. And what's lacking, what's missing in the life of such people, I think, is this urgent, immediate, present walk with God. How can you expect to survive, in other words, unless you're a person who gets before God and simply asks? And your failure to do so is the reason why you're just running out of gas, running out of steam. I want to encourage you, come back to him. This isn't an act of, of our own exertion or will or desire that gets us what we want. It's rather a submission, a surrender to God's generosity to give us everything we need to those who ask. And so I want to invite you. Let's bow our heads. Joel's going to come and lead us in a new slash old song, which some of you may not know. As we take communion, and I want to encourage you that as we hand out the bread and the wine, we recall, we recall this. This is how it works. Christ died for us, and the, the, the bread and the wine are a depiction of that, a remembrance of that fact. But what did he die to give us? He died to give us the inheritance of being sons of God. And the inheritance is the gift of his spirit. So as you're eating the bread and drinking the wine, you're recalling, in a sense, the guarantee of the promise. God, you said you would not leave me powerless. You said that you would not leave me an orphan. That you would give me a greater measure of your spirit, the spirit who cries out with our hearts, Abba, Father that knows increasing intimacy with God, that knows increasing certainty of the things you believe. Power and witness, power in all kinds of aspects of the Christian life. So don't eat and drink this merely as an act of remembering the gospel, but eat and drink it as a statement of faith. God, I need more. Maybe even there in your seat, as you're bowing your head, begin to pray to him. Lord, I've been weak. I want to return to you.